Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We're going to continue a series today uh, on the subject of Christian apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith. Uh, The passage of scripture we talked about last week is where Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason that the, uh, for the, of the hope that you have, the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So I said last week, the purpose behind this series is not just so that we'll say that's really uh, neat, that's really cool. The purpose is both to strengthen your faith, but also to empower you to confidently share your faith with others. So if you missed last week, I I strongly encourage you to go back on uh, Facebook and watch it or go to the iTunes store and you can listen to the the podcast there. Uh, But it's important that you understand what we talked about last week because we're building on that foundation uh, this week and in the weeks uh, moving forward. But to summarize, last week we spent our time establishing some uh, historical facts uh, um, uh, just based on, on historical evidence. First of all, for the historical evidence of Jesus. Uh, Second of all, we established the historicity of the crucifixion itself. And third, we established the fact that Jesus was worshipped as God immediately following his death. So as we looked at last week, we can establish these three facts without even using scripture, just using... uh, um, Uh, writings from Rome and and, and different sources, we can establish even atheists will agree on these three facts, that Jesus existed, Jesus was crucified, and Jews and Gentiles alike worshipped him as God shortly after his crucifixion. So uh, I mentioned last week that this dismisses several arguments that you'll hear today, such as that that Jesus wasn't worshipped for hundreds of years after his uh, death. Uh, You'll hear that from Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll hear that from Muslims, uh, from different uh, religions will say that. But we showed last week that that's just historically not true at all. But today, our focus is going to be between two of these points this morning. What happened between his crucifixion and between the moment where he began to be worshipped as God following his crucifixion? What happened between these two points? Now, because you're in church this morning, you would say the resurrection happened. But again, uh, in in scholarly atheist circles, and we're talking about how to defend our faith uh, today, in those circles, this is where the argument lies. Was there actually a resurrection or did something else take place? Uh, So this morning, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to consider some of the uh, popular theories that you'll hear outside the church, and we're going to talk about why they just don't work. Now, it's no wonder that this is where the argument lies, because Jesus himself said that uh, this could be used as the determining factor for the validity of his ministry and his identity. Uh, In in John chapter 2, it says that, that the Jews responded to Jesus, what sign Can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Two more times in the gospel of of Matthew, they ask for a sign from Jesus. And he says, you'll only receive one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, so I'll be in the belly of the earth. Jesus said, you can hang everything upon the resurrection. 
That's the only sign you need. But if I rise from the dead, everything I have said from this moment is validated. It's true. Paul confirmed this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Again in verse 17 he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus said, you can hang everything upon the resurrection. Paul concurred, if the resurrection did not take place, your faith is useless. So it's no wonder that today, this is where the argument lies. This is the line in the sand. Was there a resurrection? So just like last week, we're going to approach this topic historically, and we're going to use archaeology, and we're going to use some scripture, but we're going to recognize that when we're arguing for the resurrection, most people that you're arguing with won't accept an argument out of scripture. So we're going to approach it historically as well, extra-biblically. So speaking of archaeology, we do not have an archaeological discovery that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that the resurrection took place. We don't have anything in archaeology. I don't know what that discovery would even look like because Jesus was the only one in the tomb when he resurrected, when he rose from the grave. But just the same, we have no discoveries that disprove the resurrection either. What we have, uh, we do have discoveries from the first century uh, of several unique ossuaries or ossuaries. Uh, uh, If you don't know what that is, an ossuary is a box that they kept bones in of the dead. Uh, The belief for about 100 years in Jerusalem was that for the body to be resurrected, you needed something to be resurrected. So they would gather the bones of the dead and keep them in a box so that on Resurrection Day, something could come together. Uh, Anyway, with that being said, we have one ossuary that is dated to the time of Jesus that has an inscription that says, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Uh, There are some arguments over whether this is a valid inscription or not, but it's interesting nonetheless. There's another one that's actually more significant to Jesus. It's of a man named Yehuhanan. And I'm going to explain later why his ossuary, his bones, are more uh, relevant to the resurrection than Jesus' own brother. But uh, at the same time, we have no ossuary for Jesus. We have no box of his bones. We have no tomb with his body. We don't even have writings or traditions in which a disciple of Jesus faced death and says, oh, wait, it was a joke. It was a hoax. Don't kill me. So while we have no archaeological discovery that definitively proves the resurrection, we also have nothing to disprove it. So since we have no historical proof one way or the other, what we have to do is implement a type of logic called abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is also called inference to the best explanation. It was formulated and it was advanced in the 19th century by an American philosopher named Charles Sanders Peirce. And what it does is it seeks the simplest and the most likely conclusion based on the surrounding facts. It yields the most plausible conclusion without definitively verifying it. So an example would be if you went to sleep last night and you woke up this morning and everything is wet, the grass is wet, the roads have puddles in them, there's water dripping from the trees, there's water coming out of your gutters, Uh, the reasonable explanation would be to say, it rained last night. You can't prove it, you were sleeping, but the reasonable conclusion is, 
well, it must have rained last night. Someone else could say, well, what if there were those helicopters that carry the water to put out forest fires and they were all flying over your house and they all accidentally dumped them at the same time over your house? That is somewhat possible. But the simplest conclusion here is just to say that it rained. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take the known historical facts, the ones that even atheists agree with, and we're going to say, what is the simplest explanation for these facts? The first three of those we've already uh, established. Jesus definitely lived. He was definitely a person in history. He was definitely crucified. And he was definitely worshipped as God very soon after his resurrection. Now, at this point, we don't have enough surrounding facts to use this abductive reasoning and say he must have risen from the grave. So we're going to add some surrounding facts to it. And we're going to start with the tomb. Uh, the most commonly held belief is that the tomb Jesus was buried in lies in the modern-day location of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. Now, this location has got a pretty amazing history because it was considered a holy site to the Christians, so the Romans sought to defile it and destroy it. And what they would do is they would try to destroy it and build statues of their gods over the top of it. So ever since the days of Christ, uh, this location has been kind of back and forth based on the authority and power. So if there was an authority, authority that was hostile to Christianity, they sought to destroy this location. And then an authority would take over that was friendly towards Christianity, and they would seek to restore it and to preserve it. And throughout the centuries, it's been this back and forth and back and forth. But the, uh, the historian Jerome he lived in the 4th century, and he wrote about the first occurrence of this desecration uh, of this location believed to be the tomb of Jesus Christ. This is what he wrote. He said, from the time of the reign of Hadrian to the reign of Constantine, a period of about 180 years, the spot which had witnessed the resurrection was occupied by a figure of Jupiter, while the rock where the cross had stood, a marble statue of Venus was set up, by the heathen and became an object of worship. The original persecutors indeed supposed that by, by polluting our holy places, they would deprive us of our faith in the passion and in the resurrection. Now, in terms of relevance to us this morning, the most important thing I want to talk about is the very first line of what Jerome said, where he said, from the time of the reign of Hadrian. And that's because we know based on history that the Emperor Hadrian of Rome began his reign in 117 A.D., which is less than 100 years after the death of Jesus Christ. So it was during his reign, less than 100 years after Jesus' death, that the understanding was this was the tomb in which Jesus was buried. If we were talking about three or four hundred years had passed and they said tradition says it might have been that tomb over there, then we could really question this. But because it is so near to the time of Jesus, we are talking about maybe one generation removed from those who lived in the time of Jesus. They're saying this is the tomb. This is the place. And, and uh, uh, this is nowhere near enough time for a legend to develop, and they knew this to be the tomb, and obviously if there is this back and forth and back and forth throughout the centuries over desecrating and restoring this tomb, well, for one thing, they knew it was an important place. They knew this to be the tomb of Christ, but they also knew it was empty. 
Uh, further support of this location is uh, in the 1960s, excavations began around the location of the tomb, and what they discovered was a limestone quarry that was there until the first century B.C., uh, and at that point, the first century B.C., so about 100 years before Christ, uh, it became something else. It was filled and became something else. So an archaeologist named Dan Bahat, he details what they discovered, and he's talking here about a man named Father Corbo, who was the leading archaeologist uh, on this project. So he says this, According to Father Corbo, this quarry continued to be used until the first century B.C. At that time, the quarry was filled in a, labor of, uh, a layer of reddish-brown soil mixed with stone flakes from the ancient quarry was spread over it. The quarry became a garden or orchard where cereals, or, uh, fig trees, carob trees, and olive trees grew. As evidence of the garden, Father Corbo relies on the fact that the quarry had, he had found, a, or on the quarry, he had found a layer of arable soil. So in other words, he's doing these excavations and he finds this layer of limestone that he dates to the first century BC and right on top of this layer is a layer of soil that they would have used for gardens. And it says that during that same period, Bahat, he goes on to say that they also found in this area additional tombs. So in this, in this place that used to be a garden, they found additional tombs to, uh, for, for a burial ground. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because it confirms scripture. So in John 19, it says this, verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So we have this, this support for the location being the burial place of Jesus. We have the evidence that people believe this at a very short time after his death. And when we take this knowledge and we consider a few other factors, like the explosive growth of the church uh, in, the, in the early days, when we look at the biblical details, such as women being the first witnesses to the empty tomb, uh, this was a detail that in Jewish culture of that day, they never would have made up to support a lie. The fact that the resurrection began to be preached in the same city where Jesus had been buried instead of a far-off land where it couldn't be disproved. They're taking all these things into uh, to consideration. And a 19th century German theologian, his name is Paul Althaus, he sums it up this way. He says, The resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. And even if we look at the biblical argument for the empty tomb, there was no argument that said, no, the body's actually, actually there. The argument in Matthew 28 was, tell people that the disciples stole the body, because we know the body's gone. Tell someone that it was stolen. So there was no argument over whether or not there was a body. You know, that would have been the simplest way to stop this movement in its tracks. Just produce a body and Christianity ceases to exist, but no one could do it. Now, all of these facts, they led to a discovery for the, me this week that, that it, it, I found very shocking as I was studying. So uh, something I did this week... Um, is I listened to a number of debates on the, the historical evidence for the resurrection uh, taking place between a Christian apologist, his name is William Lane Craig, against prominent atheists such as Robert Gray Cavan and, and perhaps the most prominent atheist there is today, Dr. Bart Ehrman. 
And what I was shocked to discover is, again, among modern scholarly atheists, there is almost unanimous agreement that the tomb of Jesus was found empty. And for various reasons, including the explosive growth of the early church, almost all scholarly atheists agree that the disciples had real experiences with who they believed to be Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss this. The, the, the most prominent atheists alive today, the ones that atheists love to quote, they agree to the historical accuracy of all five of these statements. Jesus lived, Jesus was crucified, the tomb was found empty, the disciples believed they encountered a risen Jesus, and Jesus began to be worshipped as a God a short time after his death. If you ever share your faith with someone and they disagree with any of these five points, you can tell them that they are in the minority even among their own people. Even the most scholarly atheists who dedicate their lives to disprove, disproving Christianity will agree with all of these five questions. So the question that we're asking this morning is this abductive reasoning. When we take all of these five surrounding facts, what is the most reasonable explanation for all of them? And to me, the most reasonable explanation is God raised Jesus from the dead. It's pretty simple. Why was the tomb found empty? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Why did the disciples believe they encountered a risen Jesus? Because they encountered the risen Jesus. Why was Jesus worshipped as God following his crucifixion? Because Jesus is and was God. But to the unbeliever, they have this impossible task of taking these five uh, facts that they agree upon and trying to explain them without using the supernatural. And as I'm listening to, to some of these debates with these prominent atheists, they'll admit these facts, but they'll refuse to say the resurrection could be the best possible explanation. And they say that because people don't just naturally rise from the dead. It's never happened again. So how could you say it's the best explanation if it's never happened again? Resurrections don't happen. So technically, any scenario other than the resurrection is more likely. Church, if you take away the belief in God, then yeah, you've got quite the conundrum here. Paul wrote that the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So given that the majority of atheists, again, agree on all five of these points, including the empty tomb, what do they propose as the most reasonable explanations? Well, uh, first, there's the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die. Perhaps he fell into a coma. He woke up in the tomb three days later. He rolled back the stone under his own power, and he escaped. So uh, you think that someone who has been beaten and flogged to within an inch of their life and then crucified is going to wake up, push back the stone, and then go to his disciples. And if he does, if this theory is accurate, he would be so near death that they would be seeking medical help for him rather than worshiping him. It just doesn't work. Physically or medically, it is impossible. So they come up with this theory. He was never actually in the tomb 
That's why the tomb was found empty, because he just hung on the cross, and the birds ate him, or they took him and threw him into a shallow grave, and the dogs came and ate him. And and they use support for this theory, uh, because they say this was common among the Romans. When they crucified people, they would leave them there for the birds to eat. They would throw them in shallow graves. They wouldn't allow them to be buried uh, with a proper burial. And remember I said that that ossuary of Jehohanan was highly relevant. I have a picture of it I want to show you. This was in a uh, recent archaeological discovery. Now, what you can see sticking through there, this is the, his heel bone. And that's a Roman nail from a crucifixion. And it survived in his ossuary uh, this long. Now, why is that relevant? Because what it tells us is that a Roman crucifixion victim was allowed to be taken down and given a proper burial. So when someone throws this theory at you that says, oh, Jesus wouldn't have been allowed a proper burial, we have proof that crucifixion victims would be allowed proper uh, burials on certain occasions. Then there's the conspiracy theory or the stolen body theory. Now, this ignores the guards, uh, for one. Um, uh, This says that that the the disciples stole the body. So this ignores the guards who would have received the death penalty if they fell asleep. It ignores the fact that the disciples uh, actually had no concept of a, a physical bodily resurrection during the course of history. So they weren't trying to prove that Jesus was going to rise because when Jesus talked about rising, they thought he was talking about the last days. So if you remember Lazarus uh, in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus speaks to Martha and he says, your brother will rise again. And she answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This was their understanding of the resurrection. The disciples weren't expecting a third day resurrection in that moment. And uh, one other thing that this theory ignores is, is it, 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 excuse me, it ignores motive. Are the disciples going to say, let's steal the body of Christ, pretend he was resurrected, and that way we can be persecuted and imprisoned and killed? That sounds like an awesome idea. Let's do that. Uh, the next theory that you'll hear, and this is kind of common today, is the hallucination theory. This theory says that they legitimately thought they saw Jesus, but they were hallucinating in their grief. Now, psychologists have debunked this theory for a number of reasons, but the most obvious reason that they give is hallucinations are individualistic. In other words, groups of people don't project the same hallucination. It just doesn't make any sense. The next theory is that the women uh, went to the wrong tomb. And that's why they found it empty. Uh, First of all, this is debunked by all four Gospels that say they went to the correct tomb. But again, if we're not using Scripture, we could just say this. The Sanhedrin could have simply gone to the correct tomb and produced the correct body and and squashed the entire Christian movement. And it still doesn't establish the other uh, or or answer the other facts that we're trying to answer. So then there's uh, one more theory. And this one is, it's part of one of the debates I listened to this week and, and Uh, You're you're not going to believe that scholarly atheists hold to this theory, but some do. It's called the twin theory. This theory is that Jesus was switched at birth with another baby. I'm not kidding. The other baby had a twin brother. So Mary has the twin of some other mom, and that twin, uh, Jesus, 
uh, is crucified and the other twin comes into Jerusalem and sees an opportunity and says, uh, I'll tell them that I am the resurrected of my twin. People hold to this church and I got to tell you, they have more faith than I do because I have the faith just to say, well, God said it was going to happen and it happened. People will go to such great lengths to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Renee, if you would come. Uh, so I want to I want to pose the question, what does Bart Ehrman say? He, again, the most prominent uh, atheist living, uh, in my opinion anyway. And what he says is, I don't know how about any of the above. Because in his words, he says, it's more likely that any of these took place than a resurrection from the dead. Because... Historically, bodies have been stolen. Uh, historically, people have impersonated others' identity. So he just says, I, I can't suppose something that's never taken place. So he says, given those five facts, I'll choose any, any of the other options other than the resurrection. Um, if you are sharing your faith with someone like that, good luck. Because so many people have made a decision that, that, that not following Jesus is not based on the evidence. It's based on the fact that I might have to change my life, the way that I'm living my life. Because church, we have historical evidence for the resurrection and the deity of Jesus Christ. Now I think one of the strongest uh, pieces of evidence that we have for the resurrection is the lives of the disciples. Uh, so you'll remember years and years ago, maybe not when this picture came out, but you'll, you'll remember the picture of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, this was published in all sorts of scientific magazines and, and things like that. Uh, until uh, just a few years back, a couple decades ago, a man named Christian Sperling was on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he felt like he had to get some confessions out of the way. And one of his confessions was that he played a role in this hoax, in creating this picture. Uh, as he's facing his death, he doesn't want to go to the grave being responsible for such a great lie. Yet we are to believe that 10 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith in a hoax, in a lie, that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to say we made it all up. The, the, the greatest solution to these five questions, the easiest and most simple, we find in Acts 2.32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. That's how you can explain these five, these five facts. Jesus lived. Jesus was crucified. The grave was found empty. His followers believed that they encountered him and they worshiped him as God. Five facts that even an atheist will agree to if they've done their homework. They can ex explain it away however they want, but this is the simplest way to explain it. This would be the conclusion based on that formula we were talking about. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And can I tell you that what we find is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection is the lives of those who believed in it. And I'm going to say that again because it's supposed to still be true today. 
one of the greatest and strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the lives of those who believe in it. That's you, church. The way that we live our lives outside of these walls should be the greatest evidence for a resurrected Christ that this world ever sees. Can you stand with me? Father, I thank you so much this morning that we don't have to stand on a blind faith, but we can stand confidently knowing, Lord, that the tomb stands empty because you have raised Christ from the grave. I pray, Lord, that that our knowledge doesn't just stay within us, Lord, but it, it empowers us to share your gospel. Holy Spirit, just in this time, we invite you into this place again, and I pray that you speak to our hearts, Lord. Church, just take a few minutes and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.